You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7pm. The guest of Radio WNET is Nargis Gurbanova, the ambassador of Azerbaijan in Poland. Political Periscope. Your Excellency, you requested the interview about the situation in Artsakh in Nagorno-Karabakh because of something that was said on our radio. Uh, what was it? What sparked controversies? What would you like to address? Thank you so much and thanks for having me. Let me clarify one thing first. There is uh, nothing, no geographic name called Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh. That region is called Karabakh, economic zone of Azerbaijan, and the region next to it, the Zengezur, eastern Zengezur economic zone of Azerbaijan. Um, during the last several months, I have witnessed, uh, in generally in Polish media, the one-sided description of the situation in the region, of actions of Azerbaijan in the region. And that's why I do appreciate an opportunity to have a chance to speak to you and through you to your distinguished audience about Azerbaijan's position on what is going in the region. So what is going in the region? You may know that um, for the last three years, after the Second Karabakh War, we have been trying to negotiate with Armenia in good faith the future peace agreement. And um, as the result of this war, there was a very important document signed um, by Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Russia, the trilateral statement. And in this statement, the Armenian side undertook several very important commitments. One of them is withdrawal of Armenian armed forces from Azerbaijan and engage in demarcation, delimitation, and uh, future peace talks. Unfortunately, none of this got materialized. And on top of that, the Lachin Road that was at the time in the control of the Russian peacekeeping contingent was extensively used by Armenia to transfer ammunition to the Karabakh economic zone of Azerbaijan, transfer uh, military personnel and landmines. It is very important to highlight that over 300 people, civilians mostly, died because of landmines after the Second Karabakh War. The number of Azerbaijanis who died from landmines in this first Karabakh War is 3,000. But even now, three years after the conflict, these um, civilians continue dying because uh, the uh, uh, because Armenia has used extensively Lachin Road to transfer landmines and put them in the areas that have already been cleared by Azerbaijan uh, from these landmines. So, uh, and uh, according to our estimates, we talk about 10,000 Armenian military deployed in the Karabakh region of Azerbaijan that used to be deployed. And um, uh, we realized later that these discussions are not bringing any tangible results, that civilians, uh, civilian Azerbaijanis continue dying, that uh, regular acts of sabotage and uh, um, provocations continue uh, to take place. Uh, very recently, before the 
anti-terror operation began, uh, let's uh, remind ourselves that two civilian and four Azerbaijani policemen died exactly because of the landmines that had been planted by Armenia just a very short while ago in the area that the landmines were not supposed to be because that area had been cleared of landmines. Uh, a while before, the separatists uh, in Khan Kandi uh, went for uh, the uh, elections and the Armenian prime minister even congratulated them and basically uh, cheered uh, all these separatist activities. Um, that's why Azerbaijan decided to launch uh, an anti-terror operation, but which is that is very important to highlight here. This operation was very limited in scope. We used high-precision weapons to target exclusively military targets on situations and in cases when we saw civilians nearby. We halted the operations because the Armenian armed forces. Separatist formations, armed formations, all of them were our legitimate targets. So, and within just less than 24 hours, we managed to restore peace and order. And the number of uh, weaponry that we managed to capture during that day alone and a couple of weeks after that is a mind-blowing. Because let me just share with you a couple of figures. Hand grenades, 3,000. Bullets, 2 million. Air defense weapons, 165. Anti-tank weapons, 58. Cannons and howitzers, 60. I can go on and on with that. The character of this equipment and its detrimental nature clearly show that it was the government of Armenia that acquired it because these weapons you cannot acquire uh, you know, uh, not being as part of government. And that's why now, after this operation, there is a real chance for peace to come to the region. And now the government of Azerbaijan is engaged into the reintegration efforts. But in a result of, as you call it, anti-terrorist operation uh, in, um, in this region, about 100,000 civilians of uh, Armenian origin, Armenians were forced to flee the, their homes, the land that they lived on. And um, it is a serious humanitarian crisis. It can be even considered a war crime. Let me be very, uh, let me ask you to be very uh, cautious before blaming Azerbaijan. To commit a war crime, uh, in, envisages mm, uh, a very serious accusation. Let me tell you something. Who gave you the numbers of 10,000? 100,000. 100,000. No, no, I mean, no, no. 100,000. Those are the numbers that are basically most experts are t telling that uh, about from 80 to about 100,000 people fled the, the region. Did these experts count these people themselves? No. They uh, refer to uh, data provided by the Armenian government. Uh, the whole uh, several years of interaction with the Armenian government have clearly showed, not only to Azerbaijan, but all the international interlocutors, that the Armenian side is not genuine and is not sincere in releasing whatever information they're doing. 
Just several years before, but after the Second Karabakh War, I remember separatists mentioning the figure of 35,000 people. That was separatists themselves who mentioned this figure just two years ago. So the figure of 100,000, first of all, is not realistic. But we're not negotiating the numbers here. Exactly, because even if 30,000 people were forced to flee their homes, it's still a serious thing. Uh, Let me revert you to the words of uh, the um, Armenian Prime Minister Pashinyan. During this operation, and immediately after this operation, it was Prime Minister of Armenia Pashinyan who said it two times, very loud and clear, that there is no um, threat to civilians in the Karabakh region of Azerbaijan. It was the Armenian prime minister who mentioned it two times. Uh, Concerning the uh, fact that people really left that region. There are lots of pieces of evidence by international journalists, by Azerbaijani journalists, even by the UN system institutions, to show that that was a voluntary fact of them leaving this region. If you ask me why this happened, let me share something. We do believe that for the last 30 years of anti-Azerbaijan narrative by the government of Armenia and by the leaders of separatists in Karabakh, they created such distrust in people. They demonized Azerbaijan. They dehumanized Azerbaijan. And that's why some people felt insecure and they left. But what is even interesting, I listened carefully to all the interviews. People aged 45, 50 plus, they spoke excellent Azerbaijani language. And when they were asked, they said, well, we have been told to leave. So it's not the case of all of them being feeling insecure. It's also a case of some of them being ordered to leave. And I'll explain to you why. Before the first Karabakh war, in fact, during this war, and a couple of years before the full-fledged war erupted, 250,000 Azerbaijanis had to flee from Armenia. They fled Armenia because of the fear of persecution. That is what I call ethnic cleansing. And this is the community now that lives in Azerbaijan, in the Republic of Azerbaijan. They are refugees and they want to get back. This community is called the Western Azerbaijan community. And by ordering all these people in Karabakh to leave, Armenia wants to prevent ethnic Azerbaijanis from coming back to Armenia by promoting the narrative that Armenians and Azerbaijanis cannot live together. This is nonsense. This is the most xenophobic statement we can ever, you know, would ever, ever hear. But in fact, these statements were made by the previous uh, president of Armenia, Kocharyan, who asserted uh, this absurd notion. Uh, we, as the government of Azerbaijan, are ready to reintegrate citizens of Azerbaijan of Armenian origin who want to get back to Karabakh. And we've even elaborated a program and we have very specific measures to promote that. But maybe it is the solution. It is uh, to move Armenians to Armenia, move Azerbaijanis to Azerbaijan, uh, to create fully national states. So there is uh, there are no ethnic um, tensions. 
the fact is uh, that Armenia is a mono-ethnic state. It has been like that after the first Karabakh war when it chased out the Azerbaijani, um, Azerbaijanis from Armenia. And unfortunately, this was not the first wave of exodus of Azerbaijanis uh, from Armenia. 1905, 1918, 1948, unfortunately, there were waves of Azerbaijanis fleeing for the sake of their lives, Armenia. On the contrary, Azerbaijan is a multi-ethnic and multi-confessional state. There are 50-50 national minorities in Azerbaijan. In other parts of Azerbaijan, even in Baku, we have a sizable Armenian minority. Downtown Baku, there is a medieval Armenian church that is totally intact and where you can go anytime and see this uh, piece of religious shrine and architecture. So for us, um, we are very proud to call ourselves a multi-ethnic society. And that's why, as I mentioned, we are ready to reintegrate the Armenian residents of Karabakh as citizens of Azerbaijan. And let me also share a couple of very practical steps that my government has been undertaking. After the anti-terror operation ended, the um, government established a working group presided by the Deputy Prime Minister of Azerbaijan. And this working group has a very clear um, targets and clear objectives. Some of those, legal and governance. For example, governance in areas inhabited by Armenian residents will be carried out through the offices of special representatives of president. Uh, municipalities will be formed through elections. Citizenship issues of residents will be addressed based on relevant procedures in accordance with the Constitution of Azerbaijan. In the field of security, the process of disarmament and disbandment was completed. That's why all weapons have been collected from residents. The internal affairs structures of Azerbaijan now will be responsible for carrying order. Economic field. In the economic field, the provision of physical and social infrastructure. What I mean by that? Education, healthcare, energy, gas, water, roads, communication, communication um, irrigation will be brought in line with standards of the Republic of Azerbaijan. The incentive package related to specific economic regime and introduced for the purpose of accelerating economic development in Karabakh and Eastern Zangezur, including tax, customs concessions, will be applied in these areas too. Support measures will be implemented to encourage entrepreneurial activity in these areas. Farmers will be provided with subsidies and exemptions from all taxes, except for land tax, which is uh, the rule all over in Azerbaijan. Property issues will be regulated in accordance with the legislation of Azerbaijan. Residents will be covered by a system of remuneration, social payments. They will benefit from field services, mobile Asan, mobile Dost, cultural, educational, religious uh, spheres, the right of residents to preserve and develop their own culture, their language, protection of cultural monuments, the use of their local language. All of these things will be ensured. And as the first step, the government of Azerbaijan has initiated a web portal in four languages, also in Azerbaijani, Armenian, English and Russian, where any very wishing uh, those people who used to live in that region, uh, they can apply for initial registration based on which their residentship and citizenship issue will be discussed. So these are very practical steps to show to our partners that we are very serious when we mean reintegration.
who do you want to reintegrate? Uh, so according to Armenian sources, about 100,000 people fled Karabakh. According to um, Azerbaijani sources, how many people are left from the original over 100,000 inhabitants of this region? And uh, what are you going to do with this land? I understand that, uh, according to Azerbaijani government, it's not uh, an empty land right now because there are still residents there. Let me uh, again uh, encourage you not to cite the Armenian narrative, but let me uh, instead turn to the recent UN report. Because you know that on the 1st of October, uh, a group of UN agencies led by UN resident coordinator for Azerbaijan visited the region. And this group was composed of representatives of OCHA, that's the uh, Office for uh, Humanitarian Assistance of the UN, uh, FAO, Food and Agricultural Organization, UNHCR, uh, UNICEF, and uh, they said that there are residents between, they said, around 1,000 people there. Uh, and uh, they, the mission itself has noted that the government of Azerbaijan, on a, in very practical terms on the ground, is doing everything possible to help these people. For example... Sorry, how, how many residents? The figures that UN has shared is around 1,000. 1,000? Yes. Okay. 1,000. And now, very recently, uh, shelters have opened for them, special uh, houses for seniors, uh, hospitals. Um, they, are, they are equipped with doctors uh, also uh, from other parts of Azerbaijan. Um, so uh, we don't see, and by the way, the second UN mission has uh, also been to the region, and we expect other missions also to go there uh, and see witness with their own eyes. So very in very practical terms, uh, there are many, by the way, there are quite a few few um, elderly people there. And um, these Asan and Dost services, these are one-stop shops uh, where you can get all the paperwork done. And we have mobile Asan and mobile Dost. That means that um, staff members from these agencies, they can they visit these elderly people themselves and they help them fill in the paperwork and they uh, help uh, them register. So there are several tracks. Uh, so helping them in terms of social issues, helping them with their paperwork, providing them humanitarian assistance if they need, if they are in need of medical treatment, providing medical treatment. So mm, these are uh, steps that are right now being undertaken vis-a-vis -vis these uh, people who chose to stay in Karabakh. You're saying about a thousand Armenians staying in Karabakh when there were reports about uh, 100,000, and in the same actually UN report, we are reading about 100,000 ethnic Armenians leaving Karabakh. Once again, as I mentioned, that was their own choice. Uh, and uh, I explained above uh, why they were driven by this choice. Uh, but what we as the government of Azerbaijan are saying is that uh, we are ready to reintegrate those people into the economic, constitutional, legal framework of the Republic of Azerbaijan. Maybe it was their choice because they are a bit afraid of uh, 
some concerns about democracy in Azerbaijan. Uh, Armenia right now is considered to be one of the m- mostly developing democracies in uh, in Caucasus region and Azerbaijan is not. There are some concerns. Did you read the Armenian ombudsman statement this morning? No. She said that several um, lawyers have been prevented from visiting their clients in detention centers and in prisons. So I think that talks volumes about the level of democracy in Armenia. I'm not saying Armenia is a developed democracy, but it's one we of have the tried, developing... You have tried to blame my country for being not democratic. And let me um, I'm not say, telling it's not democratic. I'm saying there are some concerns. And maybe those concerns were shared by Armenians um, living in none, Karabakh. Uh, none of the countries in the region uh, is uh, totally, not only in the region, but let me also say in entire Europe, can say that they are fully democratic. And democracy is a process. I think that would be a very interesting uh, subject of our next conversation. And I'll be very happy to share with you uh, my views on that. But now that we are discussing the issue of um, um, security situation uh, in the region, let me just say that you cannot call uh, any separatist regime democratic if the separatist regime has been surviving by the virtue of bloody ethnic cleansing. Because let's not forget, Karabakh is not only about Armenians. Karabakh is also about Azerbaijanis. And as a result of the first Karabakh war, 750,000 Azerbaijanis had been expelled from all these territories. Even in Khan Kandi, there were quarters populated by ethnic Azerbaijanis. So we can't say that the rights of Armenians uh, are valid more than the rights of Azerbaijanis. What we say is that regardless of ethnic or religious backgrounds, we view all these people as our citizens and we are ready to extend a helping hand. Another concern, another issue that rises uh, in regard of this, as you call it, anti-terror operation in Karabakh. Um, There is the role of uh, Russian so-called peacekeeping forces, uh, and uh, actually they were supposed to prevent Azerbaijani army uh, from entering the region, from acting there. Uh, They didn't, and uh, there is a serious question if it was agreed upon with Moscow. Why would you believe that um, a foreign, a group of foreign troops or peacekeepers in that particular respect should decide for the sovereign government of Azerbaijan? Karabakh is Azerbaijan. And that's why Azerbaijan had all the rights under international law, under the UN Charter, to restore its sovereignty. We already restored our territorial integrity after the Second Karabakh War. Now it was the time to restore our sovereignty. How many more Azerbaijani lives had to be lost? How many more kids had to live without their fathers and mothers dying on the landmine explosion? For the international community to accept the fact that the Armenian armed forces and the separatist formations had to be withdrawn, had to be uh, disarmed, and finally these people, the civilians of whatever nationality, have 
finally to be given a chance to live in, with peace and dignity. Let me also share something with you. After the anti-terror operation, when our um, forces entered the region, uh, a very dismal picture unfolded in front of us. Just in the last few weeks, we discovered huge plantations of cultivated drugs. 100 hectare cannabis plantation in Khojali, a 10 hectare cannabis plantation in Agdam, a 5 hectare cannabis plantation in Shisha district, not the city, but the district that was um, under the separatists. And uh, one crucial factor here that enabled Armenia to engage in all these illegal drug activities for many years was the occupation of the territories of Azerbaijan. So 132 kilometers of our southern border had not been controlled for so many years. And all these details show that these plantations were designed similarly with a purpose for mass production. They were meticulously organized and they received regular agrotechnical care. So in violation of all its commitments under the UN Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs of 1961, under the UN Convention of Psychotropic Substances of 1971, under UN Convention Against Illicit Traffic in Narcotic Drugs and Psychotropic, psychotropic Substances of 1988, eight, Armenia used these areas for smuggling of weapons, for cultivation, smuggling of drugs, and of course it had to be stopped. It seems that Armenia right now wants a peaceful talks with Azerbaijan on the status of Karabakh, on the future of the people who lived there. And uh, Azerbaijan uh, doesn't really seem to want those talks. Uh, President Aliyev rejected the meeting with uh, the prime minister of Armenia, uh, Nikol Pashinyan, in Granada on the 5th of October. Why? The initial talks were uh, supposed to include Charles Michel, the president of the um, EU Council, president of Azerbaijan and prime minister of Armenia. Later, France wanted to intervene, but unfortunately, and then we allowed it. And then later, we realized that uh, France is not acting in good faith as an honest broker. It's not surprising because for the last 30 years, as one of the uh, mediators, France failed miserably because France was never, has never been and is not genuinely interested in bringing the peace to the region. And uh, we realized that these meetings will be used as an opportunity just to bash Azerbaijan, to exert pressure on Azerbaijan and even probably to exert pressure on the Armenian side not to agree to reasonable terms offered by Azerbaijan. As far as the last meeting in Granada is concerned, Azerbaijan proposed to involve in this conversation also Turkey, because Turkey is a Caucasus country, Turkey is a neighbor to Armenia and Azerbaijan, and Turkey has a legitimate interest in the region, unlike France. Unfortunately, uh, the Armenian side and the French side, they... Uh, created additional problems and they did not agree to that. And that's why we said, what is the point of us going there if the conversation will not develop 
in good faith, and the conversation will not bring any results. But even when we declined this visit, we were very clear in saying that we are not deviating from the trilateral conversation, which is Charles Michel and the leaders of both countries. And to the best of my knowledge, in fact, towards the end of this month, such a meeting will take place. We are interested genuinely in this peace conversation and peace talks. If you remember, it was Azerbaijan who submitted to Armenia the famous basic principles. These are principles that seem to be logical for every civilized nation and every civilized country. To sign this agreement, peace agreement, to initiate in demarcation, delimitation of borders, to open up communications, to start trading, investment, in engaging in joint projects. And uh, we're still ready to do that. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, Armenia has been uh, taking one step forward and two steps back. So it, it falls now on Armenia to persuade the international community and Azerbaijan that it is sincere uh, in its desire to conclude a peace treaty with us. With actual a very tense international situation with the chaos in Middle East, uh, the possible war, regional war, um, there are some raising concerns uh, raised by some experts that uh, Azerbaijan is going to use this unstable situation in the world and uh, this momentum to attack Armenia further to establish a corridor or um, or a passage to uh, Nakhchivan. Uh, is Azerbaijan going to do anything with it or is the current state of affairs in regard of Nakhchivan acceptable for Azerbaijan? Azerbaijan has always been an adept and a staunch supporter of the fundamental principles of international law, namely territorial integrity, sovereignty and inviolability of internationally recognized borders. That is why we have never uh, agreed and accepted the fact of occupation of almost 20% of territories of Azerbaijan. When it concerns the Zengazur corridor, you might probably imply this one, we were negotiating in good faith, I would believe, in the and I believe in the Armenian side, um, the opportunity to connect to Nakhchivan. And I think this is also understandable because it it is evident this is a legitimate interest of Azerbaijan to have connection to Nakhchivan. When the conversation unfolded right immediately after the Second Karabakh War, back then Azerbaijan was not in the control of Lachin Road. And that's why we told the Armenian side, if uh, you, you call this road a corridor, then we will call this road a corridor too, because the status of a corridor and the status of a road are slightly different. So either sovereignty of both sides are not accepted or the sovereignty of both sides is accepted. Of course, the natural choice and the legal understanding is that definitely whatever road goes through Azerbaijan falls under the sovereignty of the Republic of Azerbaijan. Whatever road goes through the territory of Armenia falls under the sovereignty of the Republic of Armenia. We have never been challenging it. Now that we regained full control of the Lachin Road, and we have the border and customs checkpoint there, and we control and have the uh, chance to check all the goods, just like Poland, just like any other EU member state. So the, the, basically the status, the situation of the road in Zengezur is the same. 
But if Armenia is not willing uh, to give us this chance, Armenia is not willing to give itself a chance to get connected to a huge Central Asian market through Azerbaijan. Let's not look at it from the perspective of Azerbaijan only. Armenia is an isolated, tiny, and the most impoverished country of South Caucasus. Armenia has a historic chance to use its road in Zengezur to connect to Azerbaijan and through it to a booming Central Asian market and beyond. So because we haven't seen a genuine interest on the Armenian side, only provocations and um, only manipulation, we have recently decided, Azerbaijan, Turkey and Iran, to develop an alternative route across the river of Aras, where we have recently laid the foundation, and we will be building a huge, a very modern um, bridge that would facilitate our access to Nakhchivan. So again, Armenia will be on the losing side. Last question from me. In the year 2020, the mediator, the guarantee of uh, the peace process between Armenia and Azerbaijan was Russia. Today we know that Russia is uh, not a lawful country and uh, it has no respect for territorial integrity, for international law. So are you going to exclude Russia from this process and find a different mediator, different third party? Or are you going to, to keep Russia in this role? Our recent experience has showed that France, for example, is not a reliable partner, right? And when it concerns Russia, Turkey, Iran, these are our neighbors. These are the countries of the region. We all share the Caucasus. But when we talk about mediation, so the word mediation, I think, is not appropriate here because all these countries were mediators within as co-chairs of the Minsk Group, which is no longer valid, existing, and we're not talking about it any longer. We have always advocated for direct conversations with Armenia. It was Armenia who has been trying to hide behind different backs. And it was Armenia who has never wanted to negotiate in good faith. Regardless of all these developments, we're still here, we're still in the region, and we're still ready to negotiate. So I do expect that international community, this expert community that you have been extensively referring to, will exert pressure on Armenia before the talks towards the end of this month to sit at the negotiation table, to act as a responsible uh, member of the international community, to act as a responsible neighbor in the Caucasus, and to engage in the peace talks. I asked you all the questions I wanted to, but maybe there is something you would like to add. Let me add by saying that yesterday, uh, a very important event took place when the state flag of Azerbaijan was raised in Khan Kendi. But even more importantly, in the city of Khojali. I am 48 years old. Almost 30 years of my life I have been experiencing the psychological trauma of the genocide of Khojali committed by Armenians on the 26th of February 1992, when just in the course of one night, 613 civilians, women and kids, and the elderly were killed with utmost cruelty. And now I think I can feel this relief that finally those kids who survived this massacre 
those elderly who didn't have a chance to bury their relatives. Finally, they have a chance to get back to Hojali, to mourn and bury their relatives according to our traditions, and to light a candle of hope for the region, for our future, for those people who have a chance to get back to these areas, to live in safety and in dignity. Thank you very much for this conversation. This was the Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m. 